0: In late 2021, US President Joe Biden signed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill into law, a key part of his agenda for the US future economy, but also for climate change mitigation. About that time, Antinu adjunct professor Stephen Gabriel from the University of Melbourne paid us a visit here in Trondheim. So naturally, I sat down to chat with him about this bill, what it actually could mean for the American energy transition. If you're interested in learning about this, then welcome to this fifth episode of the Antinu Energy Transition podcast. Let's go.
1: You have to know the economics and you have to know the environmental impacts and uh, there is a way forward but it, there's no silver bullet. You need to have a portfolio of options and and this, this first infrastructure bill is the beginning of it.
0: Hi and welcome to another episode of the Energy Transition podcast. Today, we talk about the American infrastructure bill, because I have a great guest here with whom we're going to talk about this. So welcome to the podcast, Steve Gabriel.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: In the beginning, we're going to talk about the energy transition in America, in the United States, to just give you, the audience, a little bit of an overview there. And then we'll have a look at what this infrastructure bill is about and um, if it delivers uh, what President Biden wanted it to deliver uh, maybe half a year ago. But before we jump right into that. I would like to ask Stephen to just briefly introduce yourself. So Stephen, who are you and what gets you up in the morning?
1: Well, I'm a professor uh, doing a lot of things in modeling. So it's energy markets, transportation, equilibrium. Usually it's game theory and optimization that gets me up in the morning because it's interesting stuff and it's both theoretical and it's also applied. You can actually have policy, you know, based on this. And so, yeah, trying to look at the interplay between economics, engineering and math to see if we can look at things rigorously to understand how to improve for sustainability and other you know, climate change mitigation reasons.
0: Traditionally, the United States has had high emissions in comparison to many other countries. So for example, the, the CO2 emissions per capita in the United States is about 13 tons of CO2 equivalent per person. Um, And just to put that into, uh, to compare it, in Germany, we have about 8.5 tons, which is also quite a lot. Norway has about 7 tons, but countries like India, there's at 1.8 tons. Mm. So the first question is, why is it that in the United States, traditionally, we have had so high emissions per capita, but also uh, on the national level?
1: Right. Well, the US is really 50 countries inside one. So there's three levels of government in the U.S., generally speaking. There's local, like the city you live in. Then there's the state, 50 of them. And then there's the federal government. And it's so decentralized, you um, you don't necessarily have a national policy that says reduce carbon emissions. And that was clear to me at one of the meetings I had at NTNU where one of the Norwegian colleagues said, oh, I get it, there's no national policy. I mean, there's regional policies. Like we have the... Um, Roughly, I think it's 10 states, approximately, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is in the power sector, to um, have these carbon allowances, and there's a market for it. So people make money if you go below the amount of tons of carbon, and then if you go beyond it, it's a cost. So there's these regional um, configurations, there's state level, and maybe the incentives weren't there, because you know you, you, you have to make, make it uh, appealing to the people that are directly with you, and not everybody has the same way. There are certain states that are exceptions. California has been extremely good at, you know, climate uh, change mitigation. Uh, I think, I'm not positive, but I think California has some sort of rule about phasing out um, petroleum-based cars in the near future. Other states are probably going to follow, but California is where all the new things kind of start in the U.S. and then it moves east. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: When I when I look at the news media, I very often have the feeling that the, the president of the United States is a very powerful person, not just like internationally, but also in, in in domestic policy. So what you're just saying right now is that it's that the that this power is not that large as maybe it is conveyed, or maybe as I've read it, is that is that true? Like,
1: yeah, it depends on what you're talking about. So there's three branches of government: there's the judicial, the the um, Congress, which is House of Representatives and Senate combined and then the president, which is the executive, right? Mm -hmm. So the Congress makes the laws. Mm -hmm. They have to get it signed by the president, or it can be vetoed. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the judicial enforces it and so on. So what happens is it's a two-party system, even though there are some smaller third parties. There's kind of at loggerheads, they're fighting a lot inside the Congress and then between the president and the Congress if it's not the same party. So unlike parliamentary systems, where, as I understand it at least, you know, all those three branches or the executive and the legislative are in the same party, but then they can lose the, you know, the um, majority. They can pass things more quickly, but they have to form a compromise. Compromise is not really, uh, compromise is not really always possible. But this particular president, he's done a really great job, in my opinion, of compromise. Because he, for the infrastructure bill we're talking about, He's had a bunch of Republicans who signed off on it, which for the previous president uh, never happened, you know. But what's quite interesting is there was one, Dem- one Democrat uh, from West Virginia who's sort of in the middle, and he's the, in the Senate, which is 50-50, exactly tied, because mm. you get two senators from each state. So the tie is broken by the vice president, who's Democrat. Mm. So it's ex- as close as you can get. He's the one pivotal guy that they're trying to, you know, uh, appease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so so
0: that's, he really gained quite a lot of power, isn't it? In, in huge this, amount of power, yeah. yeah.
1: And then what Biden did, which was a good idea, it's talked about in various articles, is he got 18 Republicans to sign on mm-hmm. um, to infrastructure, which is a big win politically.
0: Um, so now let's talk about, this, um, let, let's talk about the, this infrastructure bill. So why is it important and what's in it?
1: Well, uh, I haven't read it, but I'm, I'm seeing a summary. Uh, according to the New York Times, there's $73 billion worth of um, funding for the electricity grid, $66 billion for rail, so that's uh, railroads, $65 billion for broadband internet, which is excellent, I think, $47 billion for climate resiliency, $21 billion for environmental projects, and so on. So it's a variety of putting money in a variety of places that will then hopefully lead to a second bill which will flush out more of this in a, in a more formalized way. But there's $7.5 million, a billion, sorry for electric vehicles, uh, helping uh, equity issues in rural areas and mm-hmm. things like that. So what's really, I find the most interesting as a professor in math modeling here, is both the electric vehicles and the, the money, f- well, there's a lot interesting here, but the money for um, the internet, uh, broadband, yeah. $65 billion. What does that mean? What that means is that you can have real-time communications with electric vehicles, hundreds of thousands of them at some point, or millions, mm-hmm. and their batteries that are being charged can be used as a backup for the electric power grid. So it has a beneficial effect. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know there's some aggregation going on currently in electric vehicles, but it's sort of in the early stages, and you know, the whole problem with renewable, uh, renewable electricity and sustainability is that the main sources that people use for that, not the only sources, are wind and solar, right, which are intermittent. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can predict them, but not 100%. Mm-hmm. So you need something as a backup, but large-scale battery storage, like for a whole city, is not really in force now. So you need a distributed source, mm-hmm. which could be these EVs. Mm-hmm. So having the Internet of Things connection with EVs is great. Plus, based on some work we recently did for the state of Maryland, and industrial company, Uh, adjusting thermostats and what's called demand response, essentially shifting the load over time by raising the temperature or the lighting, what have you, and um, has some huge effects. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can shift 100,000 thermostats, that is uh, households, to an hour when the price is very low. uh, And also, you flatten out the load curve, so you don't need to build expensive gas turbines for the peaking to Mm -hmm. handle the peak. So it has economic benefit, it has a climate change benefit. Uh, People are generally interested in it in some cases. You can offer them an incentive, maybe, you know, some monetary value.
0: Yeah, so actually having this high-speed internet is maybe not a very obvious um, me- uh, measure or like uh, instrument to, to uh, for decarbonization in the states but maybe it's something that allows other things to, yes. to emerge later on. Exactly. You just used this word I think demand curve?
1: Demand response.
0: Demand response. Yeah. And
1: you just talked about it a little bit but could you could you, like, why, like one more time, why is it important? Demand response is basically doing something for example in a house, it doesn't have to be in a house but to shift the load to usually de- de- decrease it. So it could be Increasing the temperature a few degrees, you know, based on the homeowners agreeing to this. um, They get some incentive for for doing it. Or changing the air filtering, and at the University of Maryland, we did this. Mm -hmm. It's called uh, load curtailment, and there are actually curtailment aggregators who put together different groups of people, then bid to the curtailment market to Mm -hmm. shift the load down. Why? Well, because there's intermittency on the supply side. If you don't have enough power from wind or solar, Mm -hmm. you have to adjust the load. Mm To avoid building a whole new expensive power plant to cover the peak. So you need Internet of Things to do that because you need to react in maybe 10 or 15 minutes.
0: How, how can we make sure on a maybe more aggregate level how, how these old technologies, which will still be there, like coal and nuclear, yeah. uh, how can we make sure that they actually work together until they're phased out in the next 10, 10 to 15 years?
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's always a base load that you need to keep for electricity, coal or nuclear or what have you. And those, those would form the base of it. Um, I think the CCS technology is also important to play here. A lot of these integrated assessment models that look at not just the electricity sector, but the agriculture and everything, they usually come up with, at least in my um, meetings I've been at, you need CCS, carbon capture and sequestration, because it's very hard to get rid of carbon you know, in the short term. Um, and so you sequester it underground, so you take it out from the mm-hmm. atmosphere, and um, you know that's another way to mitigate climate change.
0: I feel that here in, in, in Scandinavia, carbon capture and storage, also because Norway is such a Big oil and gas producer is very high on the not just on the uh, news agenda, but I also feel on the on the government agenda. Is that like from your from your experience now in the states, or maybe you know since you're reading news media in the states, is that something that's been talked about, or is that something that's just talked about in like in in, in expert rounds? Let's put it like that. Yeah, it's
1: more the latter. I mean, because it's it's very expensive to build one of these CCS plans. And as far as I know, there's not a huge plethora of them. There's maybe. A few scattered around, yeah. and so uh, in fact, we visited when we were in Germany a few years ago. Went to Wattenfall, yeah. the lignite, and then we saw the CCS plant, which was already, but it wasn't active because the prices were not high enough. Mm. See, the thing is, um, it's based on market prices and things mm. like that from the signals to make it economic. And there's all kinds of different types of, you know, uh, CO two origins. You know, you can have natural gas, which has less carbon content. And I I worked in natural gas for a number of years, um, and um, they always say gas is the bridge to a carbon free future. Well, the bridge keeps getting longer and longer. That's the thing.
0: It's yeah. like it, obviously I I like the like the the picture is very nice and yeah. playful and helps and stuff. But if yeah, if if you then if that means that your investments into real renewable energies is. Um, kept down let 's put it like that yeah. then i 'm not sure if this narrative of
1: this this bridge is really helpful but there's, there's an actually a subtle point here, and i 've seen some academic papers which validate this at least in the model world mm-hmm. right so you do need a backup, a thermal backup, which mm-hmm. is burning fossil fuels until you have enough battery storage so that when there's a lot of wind, then you charge your batteries and so on so you need some um, Fossil fuel backup and gas has the lowest of the, the main... And
0: it's fast to turn on and turn off. Yeah, gas turbines a, yeah. and stuff like that.
1: Um, and what happens is you can have more emissions because you need to keep running the gas mm. as a backup. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of subtle. It's because electricity in general at the present time cannot be stored in large quantities. Mm. If you got rid of that, like any other product, like, I don't know, food or something where you store it, then the prices don't fluctuate so much. Mm. And this is what happened in Texas and has happened many other places in the U.S. too. The prices go from like 30 or $40 a megawatt hour to 7000 in a matter of 10 minutes. What? So it's it's almost like if you go to McDonald's and you get French fries and they cost one euro, let's say, just for around. Yeah, and
0: then the burger two minutes later costs... Yeah, or <laughs> 3, like euros. three thousand, or
1: or you go the next day and you buy French fries and it's three hundred euros, yeah, yeah. and you have to eat French fries. Yeah, and
0: that that and that does not really give a lot of security for businesses who are no. reliant on right. On so,
1: so everybody's hedging. So one of the things to hedge is demand response because then if the prices are really high and you're a an aggregator of households, um, then you can say, oh, I'm just going to shift the load a little bit to when it goes down to thirty or forty dollars a megawatt hour. Yeah. So hedging, there's forward markets, uh, there's internet of things. And that's why the bill here is really important, Mm -hmm. because then you can control things that are dynamic, as Mm -hmm. opposed to just saying, this is the price for the whole month. No, 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 you have to be down to the 10 or 15 minute level sometimes. And energy, as some of your listeners might know, is one of the most interesting areas, because it's got geopolitics, it has engineering, it has economics, it has human behavior.
0: Yeah. It is interesting, but it's also super complex because of all yeah. these uh, influencing, influencing points, isn't yeah.
1: it? Yeah. yeah. So it's not just, you know, like heat transfer or how to drill for oil and things like that. You have to know the economics and you have to know the environmental impacts. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a way forward, but it, there's no silver bullet. No. You need to have a portfolio of options. And and this this first infrastructure bill is the beginning of it so
0: so when yeah. when when and hopefully it will get signed eventually maybe in six months and eight months we'll see before this two-year ob- window of opportunity closes yeah. from your perspective from all from the research that you've done from all what you read in the news media with your professional uh, uh, way of looking at it what, what what are the other steps that need to be taken now for 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 really decarbonizing the united the, the american society pretty much
1: yeah i think it has to be something like what norway did Um, which is for EVs, they have no hydrocarbon tax. electric vehicles? Electric vehicles, yeah, sorry. They have no hydrocarbon tax, or at least they didn't. They had preferential treatment. Um, I remember coming from the Trondheim Airport, of course, in a Tesla, right? And I asked the taxi driver, wow, this is great. He said, yeah, I have six of them. Um, (laughs) What? (laughs) Because it was economic. You know, it was about the same price as a petroleum-based one, but you, you have all these other things. So to the individual homeowner, car owner, whatever, it has to be so easy to get an EV. So electric. Choose the the, the yeah. low
0: carbon option, right? Yeah. Or
1: solar power, uh, solar panels. Like I have a a house that I would like to put solar panels on, but I don't want to have to walk through all the you know the the hoops and everything to get through that. So I think England tried that with the Green Deal, and I think it was hard at first, and then maybe the second round it went better. We need it to be streamlined mm-hmm. so that you you click a button and say yes, I want solar power. Panels. Someone comes out to your house, they arrange for the financing, Mm -hmm. and then you sell your electricity back to the grid when you don't need it. So make it as streamlined as possible. Mm -hmm. What do you need for that? You need the Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. That's why the broadband is very important.
0: What about the energy... like generation capacity, because there is a lot of coal. There's a lot of, if I'm not mistaken, there's quite a lot of nuclear as well in the States. Um, what needs to be done? Like, or where do you see the the, the largest challenges, for example, wind power onshore and offshore? Is yeah. that a big challenge or is it is it just not incentivized sufficiently?
1: This is where the people get involved because yeah. there are certain regions of the country where coal is, is dominant. Yeah. And so you're putting people out of work. It's like what happened in Britain, you yeah. know, a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. So you have to offer something that they can transfer their knowledge and, you know, their work experience mm-hmm. to, because there are a lot of people probably that want to change. Mm-hmm. Some people maybe who don't care, mm-hmm. or some people who are opposed to it. But um, even the people that are pro-climate change mitigation, like off the coast of Massachusetts, there's wind power and stuff, but the people that were more progressive towards it, they said it's a real noise pollution. It's, you know, and there's all kinds of issues with real estate it takes down the value of real estate if you have a wind turbine that's running right by your house mm. beautiful house or whatever so it has to be really well thought out and coordinated maybe from the federal government point of view and the point the point here is that the federal government has a bully pulpit i don't know if you're familiar with those no, term it's that. like like a pulpit is when you're at you know church or temple whatever you know and, and you can have some mandates that say this is what you should be doing you have a bully pulpit meaning you can Offer advice from a very high level right and um, so they can they can suggest that and incentivize it's basically incentivization scheme. And then hopefully the states will follow with their laws. And, you know, every state has their own jurisdiction.
0: Yeah, and then we come kind of back to what you said, that it's 50 states. And that probably looks uh, also means that 50, uh, 50 parliaments need to uh, sign of yeah, regional or like yeah. state level uh, legislation in order to get this pro- these um, processes accelerated.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, taken as an example, most countries on the planet – have a majority, you win, right? We have the Electoral College, which was another compromise. Mm -hmm. Every state represents a certain number of representatives who then get to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of people said, this is ridiculous. Let's just go to the population, majority wins. Mm -hmm. But then you need, I forget what it is, two-thirds or three-quarters of the states to change that rule. And it's not going to happen, is it? Well, what people are saying now is they've passed already in some states a law, and you need enough of them to do it, that says, Whoever gets the majority then gets my votes. So they're working inside the electoral college, but then they have like a workaround, and even that's hard. Yeah, Yeah. so it's like, oh, my God. So you're trying to balance state-level government with federal, and that's that's what happens a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that these legacy ways of how things were designed two, three hundred years ago still have so much impact on current oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, legislation making. Uh, yeah, up to up until cool Stephen. hey thanks for for joining me for this episode i think it was really insightful maybe i'll just have a i'll call you again when the second one is passed maybe and then we'll yeah. talk about that second one is that an idea In that the sounds end of great next year or something i think
1: that'll be the home run
0: yeah let's see if let's see if they make it into a home run all right Cool. thank Take, you so much thanks for joining bye-bye, bye-bye.